without the budgets and the resources behind me to you know, construct those things. I can't build Afghanistan in the outback. So we have to go to Afghanistan uh, with our you know, measly amount of money and limited resources and cameras we buy in shopping malls and use real locations, use real non-actors, people who have lived that experience. Mm. The Taliban captors that we had had either lived under the Taliban or had been former members of the Taliban. They don't need to extend themselves too much when they're trying to get (laughs) into character. And that is the secret, that is the trick on a budget to make a film that feels, I would argue, more real than some films that have got millions and millions of dollars behind. Hi, my name is Chris Butel and welcome to episode 14 of the Stories Through the Camera podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by the very talented author and filmmaker Benjamin Gilmore, who I sat down with to chat about his new book, The Gap, and his latest feature film, Jerga, which has screened in film festivals all over the world and has won multiple awards, including the Australian Actor Award for Best Independent Film in 2018. The Gap is a memoir about Benjamin's time working as a paramedic in Sydney during the summer of 2007 and 2008. It's an intense book which shows what happens when the emergency call is made. And Jerga is a film about an Australian soldier who returns to a village in Afghanistan to seek redemption for killing an unarmed man during a helicopter raid several years earlier. Here is some sound from the trailer. Can you get me a driver? I want to go here. No, Kandahar is very dangerous. No, please. Da got a boom. Taliban, 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 Taliban. I had a great conversation with Benjamin, and I think if you're interested in writing, filmmaking, or want to know more about the lives of paramedics in Australia, This is a really great episode. One quick thing to mention is that in this episode, we do talk about mental health issues, including death and suicide. So if that might be triggering for you or you're not in the right headspace, this might be one to skip. You can check out Benjamin's work at benjamingilmore.com. And as always, if you like this episode, you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Thanks so much for listening and hope you enjoy the app. Benjamin, thanks so much for you know being on the Stories Through the Camera podcast. It's it's great to see you. So you've just written this new book, The Gap, which uh, maybe came out around August of 2019. Is that right? Yeah, and you say just written, but um, this book was actually uh, first written. The first draft was written um, more than uh, just about 10 years ago, 2009, and it was one of those books that um, you know you're. But that I kept in the in the bottom drawer, and I thought oh, I could I can't release this. It's too it's too full on, too sensitive. Um, the events of the book, it's a memoir, so the events of the book were too kind of raw and fresh, and um, and and in part traumatic. And so um, it it was, I guess at the time, partly um, therapy for me after this particular incident and this particular summer, and. Um, and I thought there's no way, and and also, 
there was the issue of the fact I was still employed as a paramedic in New South Wales. And, um, and it's very hard to bring these kind of authentic stories out when you're still employed. Mm. People normally, normally do that once they've been yeah. either sacked or, or they've retired. Yeah. I guess before we get too far into the gap, could you maybe tell um, the audience, you know, a bit about yourself and you as an author and as a filmmaker and sort of how, um, what brought you to, to be a storyteller in, in the first place? Sure. Um, I've had these kind of parallel lives um, for a long time. So I, uh, let's start with my job, my day job, or in this case, a day and night job. Um, I've been a paramedic, an ambulance paramedic for about 24 years. I started very young when I was 19. I had left school and flown to India and had a bit of, a bit of backpacking, a bit of volunteering with you know, Mother Teresa, who was alive back then and, and worked in a little clinic in a Buddhist monastery in Darjeeling um, and then came back to Australia and pl- applied um, for an ambulance officer position with the New South Wales Ambulance. And so I started very young, but I'd always been interested in writing and I'd always made a habit of writing since I was probably in year five, uh, encouraged by my teachers. And I'd kind of got into the world of contemporary poetry at the time and I was submitting to quite prominent literary journals, Quadrant, Island Magazine, Going Down Swinging and being published by them. So I was um, had made a habit of writing poetry and I released my, my first book in fact was a anthology of poetry, um, The Song of 100 Miles, which was published by a small publishing house in Newcastle in 1998. Um, so I, I loved writing, but I realised that there weren't many readers of poetry at the time and I really needed to, to access a wider audience. I needed to write, um, you know, fiction or non-fiction. Um, I was interested in both, but I guess I was too young to really, I felt at the time I was too young to really have uh, compiled enough experience to uh, write a memoir. Usually comes later in life. You, you got it in spades by, you know, spending so much time as a, as a paramedic. You know, sometimes within the book, there's moments that you realize like, wow, that was a 24 hour period. Yes. People, you know, live a lifetime and don't experience it's, it. It's remarkable. And yeah. it's in, in within a year of joining, I mean, you start off kind of young and naive as I did. You know, I remember sitting next to the radio at the ambulance station, listening to calls and hoping that, you know, the next call would be ours. And, mm. You know, this kind of uh, keenness that would make me, makes me cringe now. Mm. Um, but uh, within, within a year, you have seen that much, you know, suffering and, and death and the way people live and the things they do to themselves and each other, that it is, it is more, I guess, than most people would see in a lifetime. And, mm. it, it, you know, you mature very, very quickly. Um, and, and you rightly point out, I mean, the gap here from, Turning to the last pages, it's it's a book that's what three uh, two, about three hundred pages long, just shy of three hundred pages, and this is one summer. This is Incredible. approximately three months mm. um, of of selected kind of anecdotes and the central story. But I've done twenty four of these summers, mm. so uh, <laughs> you know there's a lot of life experience yeah, there. Wow, um, and it is fascinating. It is fascinating, and every day, you know. I was raised on stories. I was read to every night by my father and my siblings and I and, um, and loved stories and loved writing stories and um, fascinated by, by humanity. And every shift as a paramedic, you're thrown into people's stories and you're not mm-hmm. only th- 
thrown into them, but you're thrown into them at the most critical point. This is often the one and only time uh, these people will ever need to call an ambulance because something very intense has happened. It's kind of like a climax point of their of their life, mm. um, either at the end or tragically earlier um, due to an accident or sudden illness. And so you're really in the thick of it in that moment and you come home at the end of the day with you know, half a dozen or a dozen stories yeah. to tell. Yeah. Um, and so for someone who's interested in humans, interested in these stories, it is the perfect profession in that sense. And so I made it a habit very early on, knowing that maybe one day uh, I would feel ready to write about it. And so you said you sort of had a draft, you know, shortly after 08. Was it purely that that it did feel too raw or was there sort of themes that uh, perhaps you're wanting to bring out that you thought, you know, having some time away from it there also were, provided? There were multiple issues I thought I would face um, at the time in releasing a memoir like this for starters. It was a very dark time for paramedics in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And uh, and without giving too much away, people were still very much in shock at the events that I recount in the book. And so there was that, that issue. The book was also not only this central story about what happened over the summer of 2007, 2008, but it, was, um, it is also a book that discusses the the life of a paramedic in Sydney at that time and it was very intense not only because the suicide rate peaked but or seemed to spike at the time but because this was pre-lockout laws it was King's Cross and those areas were very uh, were quite uh, wild and um, in, in a good way and also in, in, in a not so good way and so uh, paramedics we, we see that firsthand we're right at the, at the you know the front lines of that and um, I didn't want to sanitize that I didn't want to sanitize the humor we have this very distinctive dark sort of gallows humor gallows almost. humor yeah. uh, and and you know police not to the same extent that we do but police have that you know undertakers doctors and nurses but paramedics are, are very uh, good at that and so I wanted to bring a bit of that in because that was the reality and it's part of the way we cope uh, um, and I think a lot of you know books and TV shows about the medical world um, are too scared to include a lot of that because of the fear that people will find it uh, offensive or confronting but I didn't I didn't want to hold back on that so the first draft of this book had a lot of that humor in it and um, I was worried that that would be considered by some people as inappropriate. Yeah. And in the edit, in the end, some of that was dialed back a little bit because of uh, those issues. But it's still, there is still uh, material in the book that is confronting and, but that I hope the majority of readers will find darkly funny. Mm. One thing, um, one of the themes in, in the book or one of the, the things you were wrestling with at the time is this idea of you know, you found it hard to say, you know, verifiably without a doubt that you personally had saved someone's life. And you even talk a bit about, you know, I think your brother sort of saved someone from, from <laughs> drowning or something like that and almost, you know, being frustrated by that. Can you sort of unpack that a bit for me? Sure. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it's interesting. Um, when I first wrote the first draft of this, uh, <clears throat> my thinking on the topic of saving lives uh, was different mm. to what it is now. Mm. So 20, and yeah, I'm, I've been in the job 24 years now, but when I first wrote this book 10 years ago, I was really wrestling with uh, the frustration of being pretty sure 
that uh, none of the patients that I had worked on who had been in cardiac arrest had left hospital. So we would commonly get a return of spontaneous circulation after resuscitation efforts. We'd mm. take them to the hospital. They'd end up in ICU maybe sometimes, but they'd never walk out alive. They, you know, the life support was turned off or they, they, they died up there. So um, that was very disappointing because you're trained and you're... Um, we were, you know, we were encouraged that that all these efforts that we're making, you know, and it, it's hard work. I mean, you're mm. getting called to patients who have suddenly collapsed, and they're sometimes, you know, up five flights of stairs, and you're lugging your gear up there, and they're sometimes in a very cramped apartment, and you're resuscitating them or attempting to resuscitate doing them, doing everything you can. Yeah, summer, you know, there's, you know, it, it, and then you. Back in those days, we often transport people who were still in cardiac arrest. So you'd have to lug them down the stairs, stopping at every landing and doing a bit more CPR and then going wow. down the stairs a bit further. And mm. it's very awkward and sometimes they're very big and heavy. And um, then all the way to hospital over median strips, holding onto the bar in the ambulance with one hand, doing CPR with the other. Your partner's trying to ventilate the patient. And then only to discover later that they had Didn't passed away. It, yeah. When you're in a job and your core business is to save lives, save lives and stop yeah. people from dying. And you get to the 10-year mark and you're like, I can't think of any that left hospital. It's extremely demoralizing. Now, yeah. many of my colleagues had those successes. At the time, I remember most of the colleagues I'd spoken to had at least you know, three or four, four or five patients they knew of who'd made it. But um, that wasn't me. So, you know, I wrestled with that in the book. I know now, you know, after many more years in the job, that it's not really about that necessarily. Mm. It's about easing people's pain, helping them off the floor, you know, listening to their, um, you know, their concerns and their and their anxieties about life, um, being there, bearing witness. And there's so much more that we can offer. And so this kind of the way I was thinking then felt a bit like, you know, splitting hairs or, or semantics about, you know, what does it mean to save a life? Can you, you know, um, but to me now, it's thankfully, otherwise I probably wouldn't be here in this job mm. uh, any longer. Um, it's, um, it's now something I know is just a very small part of the full job. Do, the yeah. full job. Mm. Yeah, and, and throughout the book, um, there's many times where you're, you're confronted with people in their last moments of their life. And one of the things I found really interesting was the sometimes the, the banality of of what it is, you know, people's last words, you know, sometimes you think it's going to be this big cinematic, uh, you know, soliloquy or something. But <laughs> the, the, another thing you sort of reflect on is, is how insular and sort of reflective people can can sort of get in their, their last moments. Mm. Um, yeah. What, what was your experience of, of Well, you know, I'm, um, I think I was born a romantic, but mm. I always had this notion that, um, you know, in your, in your you know, last moments on the, on the planet that, um, you know, you'd have the opportunity to say your final words mm. or what you really f feel to your partner and mm. so on. But yes, I think I list a bunch of uh, last words that I've come across and they're all pretty banal, you know, I pass me the remote or, you know, I need to cough or damn that bloody cough or, you know. Um, and so that kind of, that kind of makes me sad in mm. a sense because I fear an ordinary death for myself mm. and I guess that's just the romantic in me that, um, but, but yeah, I mean, there was one instance in the book where we were attempting to resuscitate a man who had just 
uh, gone into cardiac arrest. And so CPR was able to perfuse or supply his brain with enough oxygen for him to be conscious during CPR and just moments after we stopped doing compressions uh, before he lost consciousness again. And I said to him, I guess being the romantic that I am, I said to him, uh, have you got anything to say to your wife mm. who, who's here? You know, she was quite upset and she was standing there watching all this going on. And I thought this is, you know, every time we stop CPR, he, he goes unconscious again. He mm. may not ever wake up from this. And, um, and he just looked at her and, and said, no, got nothing. Wow. And I just thought, wow, yeah. Mm. And that's kind of, it's, it's strange, but it made me reflect on um, those final moments. And one thing I've observed, not only from that case, but from many others, is that it seems like those final moments are often something that's very private and then has to be done in, in private. And you often hear people saying, you know, when they've had a bedside visual, visual, visual with a, a loved one, that often they slip away after the loved ones have left the room. Um, mm. It's very hard. It's a bit harder for them to slip away when people are around uh, them. Uh, I, gen I generalise, of course. Mm. Um, there are those cases where uh, people die in the presence of their loved ones. But, um, you know, I, I, I do observe that uh, that's, that perhaps um, th that final breath is something that, uh, you know, is a reflective moment for an individual, mm. a personal, private moment. It's one of those things that I guess you're sort of, thrust into their people's lives, you know, for, for a short moment in these extreme moments, but it's hard to know whether that nup meant it's hard, you know, maybe the nup meant I can't possibly begin to, you know, talk about the totality of my relationship and oh, love absolutely. for my wife, or if there was, yeah. you know, it was a tense thing that, you know, or maybe he just didn't think he was going to die or, you know, it's. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I soon after I regretted uh, proposing uh, it. proposing that because I thought you know I'm presuming here that their uh, love language is you know in the poetry that mm. I'm expecting from this guy mm. right now mm. or this kind of dedication mm. um, that I'm giving you know we're giving him the opportunity for um, and that you know his way of expressing his love for his wife may have been a lifelong thing and it mm. could could never be encapsulated in these, these, these final words. So it's interesting, you know, you, you, you learn as you go. Um, you know, I, I used to insist that we carry on resuscitation f for longer than my colleagues were interested in carrying on for. Mm. Um, after the completion of our uh, protocol that pertains to a flat line to assist the way because I used to imagine that I was feeling a pulse in a patient. Mm. So I do have this very active imagination mm. where even a pulseless person will have a pulse at my fingertips sometimes, you know. I've got over that now. It was very early on in my career. Again, it was wishful thinking mm. that, you know, I, I really wanted to bring people back from the brink of death. Mm. That was what I set out to do in my career and to reach a point where you know, this wasn't happening was a point of disillusionment for me. And I almost left the job until I realized, and I get to that point in this book mm. where I realized that it's more so than much that. more than that. And it's, there's different interpretations of saving lives. I mean, one of the examples is if I'm talking to someone on the edge who is threatening to take their own lives and manage with them to bring them back from that, 
then you could classify That's that as saving a life. life as well. Absolutely, yeah. So the book's called The Gap and it's about, um, it's that peninsula in, is it Watson's Bay? What's Watson's Bay in Sydney yeah. up there. During that period, there's a, a lot of people who are either attempting or committing suicide off, you know, off the gap. And it, it, it sort of is like this specter throughout the book that, you know, you, you and, and your colleague John keep having to, to come back to. And there's moments that either one or both of you are struggling with your own sort of mental mm. health issues or, or just the, the, the challenges of the job whilst, you know, having to talk people back down from the ledge. This was the, the difficulty mm. this particular summer because both uh, myself and my colleague, John, with whom I was working, were going through relationship separations. Mm that were affecting us so badly, um, particularly in his case, um, where we had moments where we didn't feel like going on, where mm. we didn't feel like life was worth living. And it's very hard to convince a stranger on the edge of a cliff that life's worth living and that, you know, to find something, to find the silver lining when you mm. yourself uh, have lost all hope. So um, this was, you, you're right in saying it was a spectre, it was. It, kind of over, overshadowed this this whole summer and it is it is a phenomenon you know the the amount of people threatening to take their lives at this time of year around christmas new year mm -hmm. period um every year it, it, it goes up and we were we were in watson's bay at the gap probably you know four or four four or four four or five times maybe six times a week wow during that period um and more than 50 people uh go through with with the act mm -hmm. um and it's it's um, a lot of people lose their lives up there, and it's it's tragic. And um, you know that was really affecting us at mm -hmm. the time because <clears throat> we were going through our own our own personal struggles mm -hmm. with with relationships. And relationships was most often the trigger for people to end up there. Mm. There's one thing that really struck me in the book that I think you had basically walked in on a guy writing a, a, effectively a suicide note, and mm. and he sort of feels like he's been caught in the act of ambushed. You know, yeah ambushed or something but there's something that i i think about you know, maybe once a week you know and that he was writing the suicide note and you said well you know i don't think you should kill yourself but i think you should send it because you mm. don't need to kill yourself to, to get to people, people to listen, listen. Yeah, yeah and I, I i think about that all the time and not not that i have any, you know any inclination to, <laughs> no. to, to kill myself Are but it was, okay? yeah yeah um yeah you're you're right and you know it's a very extreme way of getting people to pay attention to you and what you feel mm. by taking your life. Um, and even if they learnt that lesson or listened or whatever you wanted from them, um, there's no way you would know because you'd be gone. Mm. There's no way you could benefit because you'd be gone. Mm. And the ripple effect of taking your life is so extreme, devastating, devastating mm. and wide-reaching that um yeah it's there, there there are other ways to 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 be heard mm. and so i think it's it's really important to yeah i mean if more people wrote their suicide notes and put them in the mail and and uh mm. didn't take their lives and just or, or just ran away or bought a ticket to you know barbados as i yeah. mentioned in the book you know yeah, exactly sometimes it's it's people feeling stuck in a situation more than it is them having complete hopelessness you know 
Yeah, absolutely. They feel cornered. Mm. And um, this often came up in conversations I have, I've had with people on the edge. And I mm. um, and when you say the edge, like literally, literally on the on edge, edge. Of, a, of a cliff. Oh, you look, know? Sometimes it's, you know, yeah. in a bathroom. And, yeah. you know, to yeah. talk, I don't want to talk too much about mm. method, but, mm. you know, they'd mm. be threatening to, to, to take their lives in other ways. But... Um, but in this book, a lot, of, a lot of those conversations are on, on the edge uh, at, at the gap. And it's often came up in conversation about, you know, have you ever thought about just reinventing yourself, um, starting afresh, starting a new life, you know, changing a name, getting a new identity like they do in the movies, you know, um, rather than just ending it, um, you know, when because of the life circumstances or mm. or the situation that you find yourself in. I know it's easier said than done. Some people are in situations they really feel they can't escape from at all. Mm. And and I can appreciate that. And I've certainly heard stories where I thought, gee, if I was, you know, experiencing what you're going through right now, I'd probably be right here too. Which is another challenge as well for mm. for negotiators or for, for paramedics or, or police that are talking to people uh, on the edge is that, you know, sometimes you hear stories where you're like Gee, I really empathise with yeah. you right now. How would I deal with that in your situation? And it's very yeah. difficult to be effective, as I spoke about earlier, um, to convince people otherwise when you're seeing things from their point of view for a minute and you're thinking, gee, yeah, that is tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about some pretty heavy topics at the moment, but the book is also funny and, you know, it, because it's set in Sydney and I grew up in Sydney, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of little Australianisms that, yeah. that come through that just sort of make I you laugh. I just don't think you can write a book about, you know, these heavy issues, mm -hmm. you know, suicide um, and, you know, and death uh, and have it accessible and have people want to read it, uh, which I clearly as an author want people to do. Totally, yeah. Um, without um, making, without finding the humour. And it is realistic because it's what we do as paramedics in order to survive. We will, we can go to the most devastating incident and find something, no matter how small, to point out to each other, to lighten things a little bit. Mm. And it's not meant to be irreverent. It's sometimes humour that we just share between each other. We don't. It's not for other people, but it's very, very it's helpful. It's a coping mechanism. It's a coping really. mechanism. Mm. If we just got, you know, dumped with all this kind of horror and terror and sadness and tragedy, um, we wouldn't last a week. Mm. We wouldn't last a week. I mm. wouldn't last a week. And so. Um, there are those. There's a small one in in the book where the, I think it's the police. Someone had flown up from Melbourne to, you know, take, uh, take their life off the gap, mm. and they mentioned, oh, they flew economy virgin or you know or something. And he goes, if I was going to do it, I'd take you know first class. Fate, sort of thing. Take Qantas. Take, take um, Qantas or yeah, take Qantas yeah, or something like a, that. Yeah, a quip from John, of yeah, course. You know, right. just to to us and the other police, but yeah. um, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it, 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 keep, it keeps us, us going as well. And it's often for us. And I've got a little bit of that humour in there. For example, here, I've just opened up to page 92 just as an example. Uh, and I'll read this one a couple of paragraphs. We're sent to Taylor Square for a man at T2. It's a dance club where people can party for days. Their eyes kept open by drugs and Red Bull. A man complains that he's too tired to stand and wants to be carried. Been dancing since Friday, he says with a groan but he's embarrassed to be leaving the club on a stretcher. John suggests he pull the bedsheet up over his head to hide his face from the queue outside. Lying motionless and shrouded, our patient sparks momentary pandemonium in the lineup. As we leave, it appears to the crowd that we're carting out a corpse. 
Oh my God, shrieks a man, clutching his face in horror as two girls start wailing. In no time at all, the queue has dispersed. <laughs> I wanted to really include little kind yeah. of vignettes, little anecdotes, jobs mm. in there that would lighten things. A little bit like the jokes we tell each other to get through a shift. Mm. If you look at your uh, website, there's sort of two topics that you uh, seem to be interested in, the, the life of paramedics and uh, also you know, the border area of Pakistan, Afghanistan, where you've made a couple of films. Was your first film Paramedico? Well, I think it, it was, uh, no, the first film was Son, Son, of, a Son of a Lion, yeah, yeah that, that um, played at Sydney Film Festival mm. and uh, won, won some Inside Film uh, Awards back in the day and screened around the world in cinemas mm. in 2008. Um, Son of a Lion, yeah, and uh, that was the first film. But yes, that, that area of, you know, Pakistan and Afghanistan are, are interest to me, but I think um, the parallels that can be drawn between this book, The Gap, mm and talking about um, mental health mm. and the way men in particular mm. deal with or don't deal with their mental health um, is the theme. And I think that is the theme of my other films as well, mm. in that is, is masculinity, mm. what it means to be a man, the expectations put on men, the way that men feel they need to be or you know, the, the way to be that's passed down from generation to generation. Son of a Lion is about a father-son relationship father runs an arms manufacturing workshop in the border regions of Pakistan in a town called Dara Adam Khil. They make guns out of scrap metal. It's a famous town. They test fire the weapons in the air and this boy grows up in his father's workshop and doesn't want to do it anymore. This boy wants to net what's an education. Wants he to wants to go to school. Yeah. So it's that struggle. That's the conflict in Son of a Lion. In Jirga, which um, is your latest film. latest film and uh, that came out last year. Uh, again, it's about this one's about an Australian, former Australian soldier who goes back to Afghanistan to find the family of a civilian that he killed and, and um, apologise to them. So it's about his struggles with uh, a moral injury and with guilt. Um, a man who I imagine has come close to taking his own life but decides instead, instead to find a way out, or not find necessarily redemption. find a way out, but yeah. find redemption mm. in buying a ticket and going back and facing up going back into the nightmare, facing up to it. Um, and then, you know, the gap, dealing with mental health in the, the paramedic um, realm, in the emergency services, um, you know, and, uh, and men not, not acting on these feelings and supporting each other enough in these dark moments and the consequences of, of uh, not paying attention to the way your fellow man is feeling. Mm. So, so although they, they sound like different topics, the theme through line is, is very much connected throughout your work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I'd love to talk about Jirga a bit more, uh, which again is your, your latest film. I guess my first question is, you know, how do you go from being a somewhat romantic paramedic and, and author to having well, a very sophisticated uh, filmmaking uh, career, you know, and uh, where, did you do training or self-taught? I, I don't know how sophisticated. I mean, well, well, it's amazing when you put really talented, sophisticated people around you, mm. how they can make you look, you and your talent look sophisticated. Mm. Um, the, well, way, the, the storytelling and the, the, the cinematography sure. and everything is, you know, you won the Best Independent Actor Award in 2018 and a bunch of other mm. awards. And as you said, 
screened all around the world, all your films. So, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, pretty sophisticated. I'm, I'm very, very blessed. I, yeah. You know, people have responded to it. Mm. Um, I guess I have, I'm not, I'm untrained, so I never went to film school. Um, and I really, I was never one of those film buff uh, kids, kids yeah. who, you know, knew a lot about film. So a lot of untrained filmmakers um, from what I've observed, uh, people who have learned from watching films, which is really great. Oh, um, but, but I guess um, I had an example in my grandfather, my German grandfather, who made Super 8 films. I loved his Super 8 films. He was very sophisticated in the way he made his films. He cut them together uh, beautifully and put them to music, and they were very artful. Um, and I loved photography in my early 20s. I had an old... Uh, um, Pentax 1000 real K1000, film. K1000, yeah. You remember those? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got a Nikon FM now, but I love shooting on real film. And uh, I travelled to many different countries um, in my early 20s, you know, to you know Burma, to, you know, India, um, Egypt, Syria. Um, you know, as in the streets of Aleppo, you know, when it was pre, pre-destruction Aleppo, oh, sure. it was beautiful. And did a lot of photography and kind of practice composition and light and so yeah and now i kind of feel like i've got a natural eye mm-hmm. but in terms of the technical side of things uh not that great so you just sort of picked it up as you went along yeah so with with jerga um the way that film kind of came about was it was shot on a shoestring it was um shot from the hip you know on the fly all that uh with a camera that we bought in a pakistani shopping mall um mm-hmm. in saying that it was actually a very good very good camera, small kind of SLR. A7S, yeah. A7S and um, had great shallow depth of field and had a, had a wonderful setting with, with with beautiful dynamic range called... Um, uh, S-Log. S-Log, so yeah. yeah. And uh, so I shot on that setting and I'd done a little bit of YouTube research on it, mm. but I did put it on auto. I had auto exposure, I had <laughs> auto focus, yeah. and it was point and shoot and it had a lens on it that was could be reframed mid-take so you know it was something like a, a 20 to 70, 24 to 70 24 yeah. to 70 millimeter and um so i would just do that i just reframe go again and you know and try and do a master shot and then go in or start start up close-ups mm-hmm. you know um it's incredible because i i saw the i i, I you know i saw the film at sydney film festival and you know again i i'd like to think i have some sort of idea of you know, what, am I watching a documentary or a feature film? And, yeah. and the f- almost the entire film, uh, up until you and Sam Smith, the actor, got up on stage to talk about it, I was like, no, that was a, <laughs> like, that was a narrative. It felt real to you. Yeah, it just, mm-hmm. you know, there's a scene which is in the trailer where uh, the, the taxi driver turns around to Sam Smith, who's the, who's the actor, and he says, Taliban, Taliban, you know, and it's, <laughs> and even when uh, he finally gets to, you know the the jerga mm. in, in this sort of small town. It feels so real that mm. you, 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 as an audience member, you're just like, "This is, am, is this a documentary? What mm. what exactly am I, I watching?" And that sort of authenticity is is you know, there's many great aspects of the film, but that really you know but engrosses I love, you. I love that, and mm. I think um, conventional drama filmmaking strives to make you make an audience feel like you're yeah that it's real, right? Yeah. Um, and so I guess in a sense, um, without the budgets, so I haven't had the budgets and the resources behind me, um, to, 
you know, construct those things. I can't build Afghanistan in the outback. So um, we have to go to Afghanistan uh, with our, you know, measly amount of money and limited resources and cameras we buy in shopping malls and, you know, um, which I did with an Australian actor, Sam Smith. We mm. went to Pakistan and Afghanistan together to shoot and use real locations, use real non-actors, people who have lived that experience. Mm. The Taliban captors that we had had been either had either lived under the Taliban or had been former members of the Taliban. Wow. They don't need to extend themselves too much when they're trying to get <laughs> into to. character. Yeah. And that is the secret. That is wow. the trick on a budget to make a film that feels, I would argue, more real than some films that have got millions and millions Absolutely. of dollars behind. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think it is, it's sort of a theme throughout these podcast episodes that I've recorded, but it, it's often the people who perhaps, you know, don't have the, the quote unquote formal training or, or maybe have had that, but throw that off and just go out and make it on a shoestring or off their own, own dime or their own sort of passion that those are the films or the projects that sort yeah. of uh, become popular and use really your, resonate with use audiences. Use your weaknesses, you know, play on your limitations. Um, uh, and there are benefits to not having a huge film unit behind you. There are benefits not having a massive amount of crew behind you mm. because you can be, you know, you can react quickly. We were shooting like a, you know, news crew in, in, in a war zone, you know, so it was, you can, you you know, driving along on a, on a, on a little dirt road in, in this, in, spectacular valley in eastern Afghanistan, um, very dramatic kind of, you know, mountains all around mm. us and, uh, you know, see a spot perfect for a scene and go, well, let's shoot scene 63 right up there, right now, bang, pull over, climb up the slate kind of mountainside, get up there, hot, sweaty, dusty, you know, turn on the camera and just shoot. Mm. Um, I love that type of filmmaking. And it's very real, spontaneous. It's, it's in the moment. Um, the dust is all real. There's no makeup, you know. When I said makeup to Sam Smith, he'd pick up a handful of Afghan dust and rub on his face. That was our makeup department. Yeah, I saw that in the behind the scenes footage. Putting it all through his hair and stuff. Yeah, well, can you talk to me a little bit, you know, in, in I guess, the, some of the commercial work I've done back in the 5D days, we would often, you know, the 5D was sort of the the, the first uh, DSLR camera that was a full frame image. So it had this great shallow depth mm -hmm. of field. And although it was primarily a stills camera, it had these great video capabilities. So when I started doing that kind of commercial video work, often what we do is rig it up with an extra monitor, just sort of cages, etc. you know, a bigger lens, just so for the clients, partly for functionality, but also partly so that the clients felt like, oh, this is a legitimate professional camera. Mm. So for those, you know, producer, you know, co-producers in Afghanistan or the, the people that you were working with and for Sam, you know, how did you get their buy-in when you literally had a mirrorless SLR strapped around your neck? You know, how did you get them to sort of believe in the dream that you, uh, you know, had set for, for the film? Well, um, I didn't have much to bargain with. Um, I didn't have, um, you know, uh, it, it was a, it was a certainly an exercise of trust for those people. All I really had was my history with Son of a Lion. Here, I made this film in Pakistan in 2007. In 2008, it was selected for the Berlin Alley, yeah. you know, an A-list festival, one of the best in the world. 
I've done this before. That was my argument. Uh, little did they know that I was kind of winging it again, <laughs> again. And, um, you know, it's like a fake it till you make it kind of thing, you know, I, um, to, to an extent. I mean, you know, there was preparation. You had written a script. I set out, you know, we, we had a script. There were a few changes, quite a few changes made, particularly in the first half of the film, um, as, you know, you've got to be open to the dynamic situation when you're shooting in these environments. Um, you might not be able to find an actor to play that role. So you've got to either write that character out, change the gender of the character or, you know, the age of the character. So that taxi driver, for instance, in the first draft of the shift, uh, the script was a, a young ex-Afghan uh, army translator hmm. in his early 20s. Um, and that became, in the end, uh, an older man in his you know, mid, uh, late mid-70s. Who was the father of 70s. Son of a Lion? Who also yeah. was in Son of a Lion, yeah. and that's a brilliant story. So he was, um, he was much admired in Son of a Lion hmm. uh, critically for his performance. He's a fantastic actor, isn't he? I mean, Shalom I don't speak, yeah. speak the language, but he... No, but yeah, you know, it's, it's you, all that non-verbal yeah, stuff. He just, he's really present. And um, him and Sam uh, hit it off straight away. Mm. And uh, he's a one-take wonder, this guy. You know, mm. he'll just inhabit his character and doesn't even speak English. So we were trying to communicate with through him. Through a translator. Through a translator. And, you know, him and I, Cheryl and myself, we also have a level of understanding that, that kind of you know, kind of defies verbal language. Mm. It's non-verbal. It's just kind of like body language and look at each other. He knows what I need out of a scene. And um, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. If he was, if he was English speaking and he, he was in, in, in the US, he'd be, he'd be a, the, the yeah. De Niro of, yeah. of his time. Yeah. Um, so we really wanted him back, but he lives in Pakistan. So it was really hard for him to come across the border because he refused to fight with the Taliban against the Americans. Um, even though he'd been a Mujahideen against the Russians. Not because he liked the Americans, but he wasn't um, supportive of the Taliban yeah. ideology. Yeah. And so that was always a risk to him to come over, but he took that risk for the film and he came wow. over the border and, uh, and ironically, he didn't, he's never known how to drive a car. <laughs> He said, sorry, you know. Sorry to everyone's ears, but he's the taxi driver. He's the ta he plays a taxi driver. He, doesn't, he didn't know how to drive. We wow. wanted him to play the taxi driver. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and when this was brought up uh, originally um, in conversation, you know, we want you to play a taxi driver. And, um, and one of his friends said, oh, you know, he can't drive. He's never driven. And we said that to him. He said, well, you know, I can fire an, a I can fire an RPG wow. so I can drive a car. Mm. Just give me a go. And look, he wasn't that great at driving. Um, when he got there, we, we taught him how to drive and it was, it was touch and go. And there were moments when uh, I had to frame up the shot with Sam in the seat next to him, holding the steering wheel and keeping the car on the road under the frame as they're doing the scene. Mm. But you don't see the hand because of mm. the way I've got it framed up. But that's kind of like, <laughs> you just got to roll with it. That was the kind of stuff that was probably that's happening all the time. Happening yeah. all the time and you know, it's part of it, the challenge. I mean, one thing that I kind of realized was a bit of an epiphany actually towards the latter part of the film making experience when I was really despondent. I thought, A, we don't have enough material here to make a feature. You know, some of it, um, you know, I was worried about dust on the on the sensor and mm. all this kind of stuff. There's, I was really depressed. Mm. It was like, we had three weeks left in Afghanistan um, probably shot 80% of the film and I thought it's not going to come to anything and um, I had this kind of epiphany one night and the, the, this kind of 
weird hotel in Jalalabad in eastern Afghanistan, which, you know, used to be the headquarters of, you know, uh, the Taliban back there and Osama bin Laden had hung out there once and so on. This kind of place has so much history in the walls, but I was lying there in bed one night, you know, listening to distant gunfire and mortar rounds in the mountains and knowing that Sam was in the room next door freaking out probably, you know, with his knife that he kept under his pillow. And I thought, you know, we can't expect as filmmakers that our heroes or our you know, protagonists um, have all these obstacles to get through in order to achieve what they set out for in their, in their mission, which, you know. Um, well, often it's internal of the, is, is the, the obstacle, you know, the, the sort of internal, internal struggle. Thing. Yeah, But yeah. Even, even for the external challenges and obstacles. It doesn't have to be a three beat, you know, act break. And, sure. Yeah, yeah. But we can't expect as filmmakers that we are not going to be experiencing the same structure. Uh, dark night of the me? soul. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So how can I expect that this is going to come easy or be handed to me on a mm. plate, this film? Mm. I need to go through and we need to go through what our characters are going through to earn the film. Just as they have the final act. Earn the final act. And so, you know, knowing and embracing the challenges and the obstacles as part of the journey. Amazing. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you get through them, you get to have a film. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a bit about that final Jerga scene uh, and, and how you sort of approach that? Jerga is the Afghan name for a council of tribal elders that decide on matters of conflict in, the, in that society, um, be it, you know, land ownership or cattle disputes or, you know, family issues. So, not to give too much away in the film, but when our protagonist, uh, Mike Wheeler, played by Sam Smith, reaches this village, um, Gazigar, in eastern Afghanistan near, uh, in Kandahar, he has to face the Jirga and his fate will be decided. And um, so that day was a very interesting day on the shoot, actually, because we had very little time. We had an opportunity to get this whole village together. We had all the elders of the village gathered for this trial. They'd sort of been briefed, but some of them- Briefed, a brief briefing, (laughs) certainly not workshopping, certainly not proper rehearsals, nothing like that. Yeah. And so, you know, we considered that the best way of going about this was to allow them to hold a realistic jerga as if, you know, this soldier Mike had come back having killed one of their men. And some of them were sort of convinced that perhaps he was a real soldier. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And in fact, you know, there was one one old guy there um, who was arguing for his his execution, and um, our Afghan co-producer Amir Shatalash told us after we wrapped that the old guy thought that Sam had actually committed this crime and mm. was coming back to apologise and that it was real. Mm. And I've often found shooting this part of the world that um, people sometimes are are confused by. You know, the, the finding the line, like they have trouble finding the line between truth and reality. I don't mind that so much, but it, can, it does have, have risks. I don't mind it because you get the authenticity, but it does have risks. In fact, I remember a tea party I once went to in Pakistan where <clears throat> there were, it was in Royal Park in Lahore, where, which was, this is kind of like the Pakistani film industry, Lollywood mm. in Lahore. And, uh, a whole bunch of guys got together and had, had were having tea and I joined them and they they played villains in films and they said they they had um, 
they could very rarely show their faces in public wow. because people would attack them thinking they were really villains mm. uh, because they'd seen them in films. I remember um, someone had been to the, uh, the Hotel Mumbai premiere, which is right. a film starring Dev Patel and Arnie Hammer, but basically these radical terrorists shoot up this hotel in, in Mumbai and the film, which is actually an Australian film, is very much a very raw portrayal of what happened and there's you know dozens of people being executed but mm. the person who i think went to the you may have even been in berlin uh you know went to the premiere and then they're at this cocktail drinks moment you know yeah. afterwards and all the the terrorists you know who kill oh, everyone right, in yeah. the film they, are walking having around cocktails. having cocktails and it was just like <laughs> you know even they are a film industry person it was like incredibly disconcerting mm. for them so double take yeah i can imagine it would be <laughs> be uh you know hard for anyone when particularly if they're playing villains in a yeah, film and yeah. if you're you know if you're an afghan tribesman uh you know in a remote village which is where we were shooting mm. this and uh you know you with this pretty small camera you know and th things it. lost in translation you know yeah. i mean we were relying on i mean shah who was our local uh translator and co-producer that he would and we were asking him to set up a real jerga so who knows he he may well have said this is we're this having a really jerker for this guy who yeah. killed, you know, one of who killed an Afghan. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it, people comment about that particular scene as being, you know, frighteningly authentic, realistic. Yeah. Mm. Can you talk to me a little bit about, um, I guess, what you want people to take away from from the film uh, and even the gap as well? Yeah, I'm sure it's not just one thing, but but maybe starting with jerker. I mean. I, I just want to make people think mm. uh, and you know, to, to contemplate um, their attitudes towards uh, other humans and humans who they may have had, you know, previous feelings of hatred towards or assumed they were their enemy or, you know, bought into the stereotype. That um, wasn't the sole purpose for people to have sympathy towards um, the other, but it is um, a big part of it for me. So with Jerga, I really wanted us to enter the world of Afghanistan to get a sense of who Afghans really are, uh, including some uh, Afghans who we may have made assumptions about in the past and just to um, keep our own, you know, kind of biases in check. I guess that's one, you know, to humanize. Mm. I guess it's one of the reasons, a uh, pretty important reason um, that I made Jerga and that I you know, want people to take away from it um, a sense of you know, uh, understanding the other a bit better. Mm. I mean, I must say that that was very much the, uh, what I took away from the film, you know, mm. particularly for Australians, you know. So, you know, a war being fought in our name and, and the ramifications and the, and the consequences of that, well, I think. Are, absolutely. I think it is yeah. hard. It's an anti-war film and it was driven. I was driven to make this film because I had a very strong belief very early on. Uh, even And many people, even those who supported uh, the Americans and their allies going into Afghanistan, certainly didn't have not supported their uh, extended occupation mm. of the country, which has been the problem. I mean, we, we only saw... A resurgence of Taliban activity, you know, three or four years after we'd been in there, because people realised, oh, hang on, they're not just here to get rid of the government here; they're really here to occupy. And so, you know, there was a renewed support for resistance against those occupying forces. So, I've been very much opposed to the war, 
Um, and that's through my friendships as well with, with Afghans um, of all ethnicities uh, over there, um, you know, who I get information from and I have discussions with. So it's not just my opinion from afar. Mm, mm. Um, and so this, this film was made uh, in response to those, mm. that, those passions I have within myself uh, against war as a, as a solution to these The world's issues. problems, yeah. <laughs> it must be so, um, I guess, fulfilling to, to know that, you know, you had that dark night of the soul moment with, with Jurga and the film's done really well. I mean, we, we briefly mentioned this before we started recording, but it won uh, Best Independent Film at the Australian Actor Awards in 2018. And uh, was Cinefest it Cinequ Oz. Cinefest Oz and, and, you know. Went to Toronto. De debuted at, you know, film festivals all over, around the world. Um, it must be incredibly Well, satisfying. I never really, you know, we, mm. uh, you know, Sam Smith, myself, John Maynard, um, and the, uh, you know, the actors and non-actors in Afghanistan, our crew, never really thought about the end point so much as, you mm. know, where's this going to end up? You know, we want to win this award. Totally. All that. You know, it was about. Telling the story. We just want to tell a truthful story in a really authentic way at, and channel our passions into it. And, you know, and the Afghans were very much on board with that. They wouldn't have risked their lives if they didn't feel this was an important story to tell and that it was real. And so, I, you know, I would say to other people who want to make projects like this, um, you know, sometimes I reckon just be in the moment of your project. You've got to have a lot of passion for it for starters to mm. see you through because it's a long journey. And just to have focus on the purity of what you're doing rather than thinking endpoint, you know, accolades, accolades money, you know, audience, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, we just kind of, I felt like I was channeling a bit kind of something really special. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of us felt kind of possessed in that same way without sounding too magical thinking about it. But um, just kind of go with it. Like, you know, the universe was behind us. This, this film needs to be out there. Mm. So, you know, it's a bit easier when you're making something that's got kind of um, Safety, a moral, moral yeah. message there and something mm. that's, you know, kind of um, important social and political mm -hmm. point to make. Mm. But, um, yeah, I'd say, you know, be in the, in the moment of your uh, creative passion. Mm. Love it. Mm. So, Benjamin, where can uh, people, you know, see... Jurga and the rest of your work. I mean, The Son of a Lion, Paramedico, sure. which are your other films, and you've got a plethora of books you've written. I really want to read, uh, is it Cameras and Kalashnikovs? Cameras and Kalashnikovs, yeah. That's, that's sort of memoir of... It's out of print. It's a memoir okay. of the making of Jurga. Right. I think, you know, it was a limited edition, 500 print runners full of great pictures. There may, you may find one online if you're lucky. Mm. Um, I don't certainly don't have any left. Um, they sold out pretty quickly, but... All well, my books are available, you know, in all, in all good bookshops. Well, certainly the gap is in all good bookshops in Australia um, and online, audiobook, ebooks, it's all there um, uh, online. Jurga is on Stan in Australia uh, and in the US. It's on iTunes and I think on YouTube On Demand. What's that one? Okay. Is it? Yeah. Google Play videos or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. Um, but again, if you Google Jurga, it's you'll be able to see it in some form out there. All the links are through. It can be accessed through my website, yeah. benjamingilmore.com. And um, people can also support the Afghan filmmakers through that website and and our future filmmaking endeavours if they so wish. And uh, but uh, you know, if you if you Google the Gap. Um, it'll be it'll be out there and it'll be in a bookshop near you and hopefully it will be um, hopefully it'll be 
and there'll be an international release of the gap soon as well uh, and in terms of son of a lion my first film i think you'll just have to find it online I, i'm not sure where it is at the moment um do you still have it on, on a hard drive hard drive somewhere maybe you can i know, uh, I know there's a few uh, there's, a, there's a few great uploads illegally out there oh, but, i see yeah um but you know it's um yeah i'd love to be able to direct people to where you can get that one legally but um it's not always that easy these I days to, yeah. yeah um is there anything else you want to leave the, the audience with at uh, all? or are you feeling good just with a bit of peace on earth see how we go I love it. All right. Well, Benjamin Gilmore, thanks so much for doing these stories through the camera podcast. Appreciate it. That was a very talented author and filmmaker, Benjamin Gilmore. You can check out his work at benjamingilmore.com. And uh, if you like this episode, please feel free to leave a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening and I'll catch you in the next episode.